Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. We've spent a large portion of the last year being reminded about health inequities between black and white. COVID-19 and its impact has dominated headlines. Now the pandemic is receding, and that's good. But there are other issues of racial health inequity that have been looming. Today, we're going to focus on maternal mortality among black women. Those numbers are not good. In fact, the United States has the highest, yes, the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world. About 700 women die each year as a result of pregnancy or its complications, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related issues than white women. Most of these deaths are preventable. Let that sink in. The racial gaps affect black women regardless of income or education levels. And black infants are more than twice as likely to die than white infants. 10.8 per 1,000 black babies compared with 4.6 per 1,000 white babies. More than double. The Biden administration in the COVID relief bill and its proposed budget for fiscal year 2022 has included funding to reduce maternal mortality and morbidity rates, improve health equity, and end race-based disparities. But there's a lot of ground to make up. Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith is a co-chair of President Biden's COVID-19 Advisory Board, and she leads a White House task force dedicated to health equity. Dr. Nunez-Smith has said health equity research has the power to, quote, make the invisible visible. So what does America need to see and then do to produce equal health outcomes for all communities in the area of Black maternal health and more? Welcome to Equal Time, Dr. Nunez-Smith. I just want to start off by saying that before you joined the Biden administration, you were at Yale Medical School and were founding director of the Equity Research and Innovation Center. So you have been dealing with racial health inequities your entire career. So I want to begin this conversation talking about maternal mortality uh, and particularly Black maternal mortality. We know the numbers. So why has this not received more focus by the mainstream medical society and society in general. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I um, I do come to this work with this lens as an academic researcher who has been uh, working for for decades on this work. I'm you know I'm actually still at Yale um, uh, while working with the administration, and you know just think that this you know this moment where we've talked so much about COVID and. Uh, and its deleterious effects and, uh, and really uneven burden across our communities, so important. But it's not the only conversation we need to be having. And this question of maternal morbidity and mortality in our communities, you know, as I would teach our med students and tell them that, you know, maternal mortality is higher for Black women in our country who have a college education. Right. Then for those women who are white and, uh, you know, have not graduated from high school, that this is an example where we see even socioeconomic um, sort of uh, status not being protective. And there is more work that needs to be done. It is a shame when we look at the gap there and how closely in our communities of color, maternal mortality, infant mortality mirror um, rates in, you know, in, in countries that are that that really in many of the countries across the globe, in fact, that we would refer to as, you know, developing or low middle income countries that have better rates of maternal um, health and wellness and infant health and wellness than we do in our communities of color. So I think 
This is a moment where we have to look around and say, the only disparity is not COVID-19. And this is, it, it, the urgency is there. Um, but, we, but we understand very much, I think, that uh, in 2020, there's a collective witnessing, and hopefully that expands to include the other health inequities that have been persistent and really have not gotten the attention that is, that is needed. Well, the White House in April, they did issue their first ever presidential proclamation marking Black Maternal Health Week. And you saw the vice president, Kamala Harris, and Susan Wright, you know, director of Domestic Policy Council, and they're both Black women. Uh, and Kamala Harris had brought that up on the debate stage before. And they participated in that roundtable to draw attention to the issue. And the vice president listed systemic racial inequities and implicit bias as the primary reasons for this crisis. And of course, as you just said, they were complicated this past year by the COVID pandemic that highlighted inequities in healthcare and transportation and housing and broadband. And so why was this proclamation important, if not revolutionary? I think it's critical. And you you uh, really highlighted the, the role of just leadership. And this administration is incredibly committed. It's one of the pillars is achieving racial equity um, and thinking about this across sectors and across government. And I think this is a reset moment. You know, when you see the vice president, when you see Ambassador Rice, when you see others stepping forward and saying, the time is now, we cannot ignore it. We have to name the realities that drive it. We have to intervene and fix it. It is a rallying call. Um, and it's going to make everyone take notice. Within the whole of government, certainly, it's a it's an opportunity to think about those policies that must be revisited and revised. But I think for everybody outside of the U.S. government as well, healthcare providers and others, to, to, to really hear, um, perhaps some for the first time, the charge um, to do that work, to make sure that the care we're providing is equitable, is fair, is culturally responsive, um, and is free of bias, discrimination, and racism. Yeah, when you talk about policies, do you have some concrete plans to address this really shocking fact that Black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related issues than white women with so many of these deaths preventable? Are there some concrete plans to address that? Yes, you know, the administration will address this. You know, my my role and scope is, is certainly looking at COVID-19 response and recovery. Um, but again, I think that when, you know, you cannot really disentangle these issues. We know that in this past year, access to healthcare has been difficult for everyone, including women who are pregnant and trying to conceive, right? And so this, this idea of how do we make sure that there is always high quality care and access to that for, for people, but especially for women and across the lifespan is key. You know, from, from our vantage point in the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force, which is one of the roles I played chairing that, um, working with a wonderful group of, of, of members, as well as a senior advisor to the COVID-19 response team. I think it is important for us to, to say you know, we know that we've learned these lessons, unfortunately, in a very hard way. So how do we make sure that as we think even about things like pandemic, that we haven't forgotten what are the chronic ongoing problems? I mean, it is so important to say that we talk about this disproportionate burden, but it's not about COVID-19. There has not been a year 
when communities of color, black and brown people, indigenous people in our country have not suffered disproportionately. And, you know, this issue of maternal uh, maternal health and infant health is 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 top of the list for urgent attention. Yeah. Now we see, though, that, as you mentioned, with COVID, with the black maternal health disparities and so much other inequities and unequal outcomes so often and we saw this with COVID a lot, people try to turn it back on the communities. If only you took better care of yourself. If only you didn't have these comorbidities. But as you mentioned, even uh, in, say, maternal health, for Black maternal health issues, we see folks like uh, Serena Williams talking about uh, taking charge of her health care, saying it's not income or education. So could you hone in a little bit on this issue of implicit bias in the health system? Is it a matter of that and tackling that? Well, we have to tackle at least that. I mean, we know when we talk about health and the variance we see in health outcomes across groups, that much of it, you know, 60% of the majority is really driven by these social economic factors. And so, you know, you mentioned already the policies we have to think about in terms of um, what is a legacy? It's not historic, it's contemporary. Disinvestment in particular communities, limited resource access and opportunity. All of that is out there. You know, but we know as well that variance within healthcare settings accounts for about, you know, 10%. We shouldn't see that 10% at all. And when we talk about Black maternal health, we know that those traditional rules, as we started off saying, don't always apply when you have someone like Serena Williams, so important to bring attention to this issue, to remind us again that achieving wealth, high income, achieving high levels of education, you know, are not as fully protective when we talk about Black maternal health as they should be. So I say, listen, it is an imperative for healthcare providers and organizations to eliminate that 10 to 20 percent of the variance that is due to differences in how we treat patients. And whether it's implicit bias, explicit bias, I mean, there is much work for us to do. Um, we have to begin with our, our data systems, most certainly, and aligning those policy levers with the incentives so that the healthcare providers kind of have a clear North Star for what's expected. Oh, yeah. Well, you're talking to someone who had a preeclampsia at birth, and I was so lucky to have very careful uh, health providers because it could have turned so out so badly. So is the solution, do you think, uh, one of the solutions anyway, more Black women becoming doctors? Because I looked it up, I couldn't believe what a rarity you are. I think just 2% of doctors in the United States are Black women. So is that a solution, and how do we get there? Yeah. So, you know, you are you you are preaching now because it's sort of one of the areas that that I and many others have been working on for decades is increasing representation in our workforce. Representation, obviously, a point of entry, bringing in more health professionals who are from the communities that, you know, have been most affected by health inequities, um, but also making sure that as we go through leadership, as we think about who is running healthcare systems, who's on the board, you know, who are who are the leaders at our academic health centers, that there's representation there, you know, as well. Um, you know, it's true that the numbers are far below if you set a standard for representation in the general population. If we said, you know, Blacks, African Americans are 12 to 14 percent of the general population, yet four to five percent of practicing physicians. And then again, when you look at Black women down to two percent, you know, uh, Black women as a specialty tend to be drawn to OBGYN, actually, if you even kind of look at those numbers under that 2%. 
We definitely need more representation. This makes a, a, a huge difference. I often say that it's it's not that we're looking for segregated care. No one is asking for that. What we want and what we know, and we learn this from our business communities, is having diversity in teams will always make teams better and will make will make institutions more accountable, quite frankly, in terms of the policies and the practices. And that's what we're looking for. And so I think it is possible. Um, there's the commitment of the, the Association of American Medical Colleges and others that are really pushing to say, this is one of the key steps we have to take is workforce diversity, no question. Oh yeah. Now we talked about that interrelated systems that make up this puzzle of racial health inequities that deal with COVID and Black maternal health. Now, when President Biden tapped you to to head the team and to be a part of this important team, beating COVID-19, of course, was at the top of the agenda. And that was your first priority. And you were uh, addressing this disparate impact on communities of color when it comes to infections and uh, deaths and then also vaccine distributions. And I, I uh, was doing research and it said that Mississippi was, was making strides by reaching out to through community groups to the public. But disparities do remain across the country, particularly in the South. So as the U.S. is reopening very quickly, what is being done to ensure that those communities are protected and vaccinated? And, and what are some of the things you've done to reach out to communities of color to convince them to get the vaccine? Absolutely. You know, President Biden, Vice President Harris, from the very beginning said that as we think about vaccinating the country, we have to think about it through the lens of equity. We have to be centered in that way. It's incredibly important. It's guided every step in the policy process. You know, first and foremost, as an administration, we have prioritized access. And so within the first three weeks of the administration, stood up several federal vaccination channels intended to reach those communities that had been hardest hit. So whether that was the mass vaccination sites located specifically in zip codes where we thought the need was the greatest, whether that was the partnership with community health centers across the country who serve really two thirds of their patients identify as people of color. You know, thinking about mobile and mobile units and opportunities and then partnering with pharmacies across the country, local and independent, as well as chain. So making sure in those first initial moments, access was key. And I've continued on that theme. You know, President Biden announced We're not going to let barriers stand in the way. We have solutions for those who need transportation. We have solutions for those who need childcare. We have made sure that employers know, especially those for small and medium businesses, they can get a tax credit so people can get paid time off, which we know has been such an important consideration. In the month of action in June, pharmacies are going to stay open. You know, many, many of them Friday nights all night long in case somebody's work schedule or childcare schedule necessitate that in terms of availability. So being very intentional at every step to make sure access is there. And I think once we know access is there, now we have supply across the country for everyone. So making sure that those barriers are addressed is key. The federal administration has been leading on that. And of course, working closely with states and and local partners uh, to do the same. But then once we have access in place, then we know we have the, the, the moment to talk about information, to talk about confidence building, to make sure that we are respectful of people's questions, that we are meeting people where they are in every step of this journey, um, and that we are countering that misinformation and disinformation that's out there. And there's a national public education campaign to do that. But this is about partnership and collaboration. What you said is so critical. The trusted messengers, the trusted voices, be it faith-based organizations, 
you know, be community-based organizations. President Biden also announced shops at the shop. We know that in Black communities, the barbershops, the beauty salons, those are incredible, incredible wells of information exchange in our communities. And so being able to partner with a thousand shops across the country so that the right information gets out there, so that vaccination is available on site at those shops. So always, always. And, you know, one of the things that's been, I think, of the greatest value to me in this role has been kind of ongoing roundtable discussion with stakeholders, leaders, and groups that we host in the White House. We host many, many every week. And I get to hear from people on the front line about what's working and what's not. So you're right. We have more work to do. There has been uh, progress made in these past weeks. We've seen the majority of first doses of vaccine go to people of color. So, you know, this is really important, but no one's taking a victory lap. And we know that we need to all get to the other side of the pandemic um, and nobody's going to get left behind. Well, what do you say now that access is out there, which was a problem in the beginning, what do you say to people who are still hesitant, maybe hesitant, particularly in communities of color, which they have reason, let's face it, to be somewhat mistrustful of the medical establishment? Absolutely. Absolutely. They do. The president has acknowledged that. I mean, he has said explicitly that in, in you know, in our communities that uh, the the disrespect, the medical experimentation, all of that, you know, we talked already about the contemporary reality of bias and discrimination in healthcare settings, even today, as people and their families have tried to seek health care. So all of that is true and has to be acknowledged. You know, what we also have to acknowledge, of course, is the devastating toll COVID-19 is taking on our communities, both in terms of loss and the grief gap that we see and experience, as well as the economic toll, the educational toll for our children. Um, you know, we understand that you know getting COVID nineteen is a gamble nobody should take because this is not the flu. You know, we don't know how it will treat us. Even if you get potentially a mild case, you could end up with symptoms that are debilitating for months, um, and so. We understand very acutely, uh, I try to talk with people about this, the benefits of getting vaccinated, you know, also about reclaiming our joy, worshiping together, um, so important, getting our kids back in, in school, doing the things that we miss doing, reuniting with family and loved ones. So there are many, many benefits. You know, the vaccines work. They work to keep people out of the hospital, away from serious illness and alive. This is important. All three vaccines work really well, highly effective. Hundreds of millions of doses have been given. The safety profile is incredibly strong. So the risk of getting COVID-19 far, far outweigh the risk of the COVID-19 vaccine. And that's information that I want everyone to have. And there is urgency here because we're in a fight against the variants. And so the sooner everyone gets vaccinated, the better our chances are of winning the war against these mutations that could end up being harmful. Yeah. Is that your message? Like as far as going down the road, we may look like we're past it, but we have to be vigilant in the next one month, two months, three months. Yeah, the president has said we have to be vigilant. We know it's summertime. Um, we're looking for the 70% by 4th of July of adults to have gotten at least one shot in the country, but we still have to be vigilant. And we know that if you're unvaccinated, you remain at risk. When we look at who's in the hospital now, it's people who are unvaccinated. You know, already in our country, over 70% of people 40 years and older have been vaccinated. So it's really about getting to younger people as well and really encouraging you 
to, to get vaccinated for yourself and to protect your community, your family, your loved ones, those around who might be vulnerable. You know, I love what you said about grief. Uh, communities of color were disproportionately affected. And it seems like as we are coming out of it, so many people are putting it in the back mirror. as it, It's as if it didn't happen. But yet there's so many in our community that have suffered that I think to stop and acknowledge that grief is so important. I really appreciate that you said that. Um, what is that feedback that you're getting as you're out in the community of what the support is that they most need? Yeah, at this point, we know, you know, the folks who have gotten vaccinated by and large are those who have, have been eager to. Um, and so we know in this next step, in this phase, it's hyper-local, it's door-to-door. You know, I've had the opportunity to go door-to-door canvassing in New Haven um, and really um, tremendous and tremendous credit to the groups that organize it, grassroots organizations, community-based organizations, a community health center. They said, like, we have to get out there. That's how we have to do this. Make sure that it's hyper-hyper-local. And so right now, you know, what we hear the most about, because as you said, the intention has been there around creating access, um, so what we hear about a lot now are, are the mis- misinformation and the need to be just so proactive and making sure that we debunked the mythology that's out there. Um, and it's really, I mean, it's tragic and it's tragic the way um, bad actors are targeting, quite frankly, communities of color intentionally with, with misinformation. Mm, yeah. Well, you talked about the people in hospitals are ones that haven't had the vaccine. Is there going to be a great, are there going to be greater efforts to vaccinate Americans in emergency rooms? And, you know, we know the demographics of people who rely on the ER for healthcare. And could this help reach more Americans? Absolutely. We want vaccination in every setting, really. And so, you know, hospitals, we already have a a practice in hospitals. I'm a practicing internal medicine physician. We offer people vaccines upon discharge for things like influenza um, every year for for pneumonia vaccines. So, you know, that is there. And many health systems are, are doing this. So, you know, we very much encourage a strategy where hospitals are working, healthcare systems are working to offer uh, vaccination to people who are getting discharged, including from the emergency department, as you rightly point out, a usual source of care for many, many people, including many people of color. Yeah. Well, what message do you have for the many immigrant families who are so concerned about vaccine access for their families abroad? Because we know so many other countries are lagging behind. Yeah, this is a global pandemic and we need a global recovery. President Biden has spoken uh, to this. You know, the United States is leading in this effort. Um, Over $4 billion commitment to COVAX, a promise to share 80 million doses To start, you know, the president has charged an entire team across government with this question now to think about how we, as the U.S., again, lead in this space. No one, this is also through a public health lens, the the president clearly said this, this is not a political tool in any way, right? This is about public health and recovery and that we have to engage other countries across the world as well in sharing. Um, But but this is the priority in this next phase, a a huge focus on global. And understand we we are part of a global family. And for so many of us in the country, our family ties extend to many of the countries that are under siege. Yeah, well, you brought up family ties and you know I couldn't let you get away from equal time without getting personal a little bit. You spent your career focused on community work, health equity research, but I've read that your childhood experiences led you to that path. So can you talk a little bit about your own family's experience with the healthcare system and how you grew up? 
Yeah, no, thank you for that. You know, I think so many, for so many of us, particularly for so many uh, physicians and healthcare providers of color, we we have family stories that are motivating and, and often through this lens of uh, of knowing that there's opportunity to do better and different in our healthcare systems. You know, I grew up in the U.S. Virgin Islands, just a beautiful part of the world, um, one of the, the U.S. territories and very early on had my life uh, touched by the reality of health inequity. My own father suffering his first stroke in his early 40s left him paralyzed. Um, uh, and just to, to see him go through that struggle, everything that it did, obviously, to all of us in his family and loved ones, uh, for him to live with disability and to know that it was a preventable condition, right? And so coming to understand over time that this idea of kind of being in an area that was underserved, as it was described, you know, this vague concept, but what it really meant was that we were limiting potential, really, for people, that we were causing deep suffering for families, you know, that there are children who grow up with this uh, really um, uh, different life and a different narrative, potentially, than others, where their families have access to high quality health care. So, you know, an incredible provider community, so rich in the Virgin Islands as all of our communities are, yet still we know that things like health policy do drive access, do drive availability. And it's important to always hold in mind that we're talking about people, not statistics. And that absolutely has driven me every day in my career. Well, that's fabulous. Is there, uh, when you have that personal you, that personal experience, it really gives you that North Star to keep going. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Is is there a question that I have not asked that I should have? Because there are some things you want to say on the matter. Well, thank you so much. I, you know, I, I've so enjoyed our conversation today. I thank you so much for this invitation and this platform and all the work that you're doing on making sure the information gets to people. You know, this is a moment I think we can meet and history will judge us. And I want everyone to know that this is not the job of a single administration. It's not the job of a single healthcare system. All of us, right? Each one of us can lean in and lead in this moment to make sure that this is transformational. And so that future generations look back at these conversations with curiosity. When we talked about a time when zip code was a stronger determinant of your health than your genetic code. And so that's what I want for us and for our children. Well, thank you. I know you have to go, but I appreciate you spending time with us at equal time and and bringing the message about health inequities across the system. We've seen that with COVID, it was highlighted, and we don't want those lessons to disappear, but I know you're on the case. (laughs) Yes, Yes, we're on the case. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith. Take care. You too. Be well. So what's keeping me up at night? The COVID pandemic highlighted disparities that were always there in education, housing, transportation, and most especially healthcare. From access to bias among health professionals to minorities getting recriminations rather than treatment, it was a problem, sometimes a deadly one, and health inequities remain. It's a hopeful sign that professionals such as Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith are working to change the systems that have needed changing. As one whose own childbirth experience was scary, I was lucky to have had a team of health professionals who monitored me closely through nine long months and, most importantly, listened to me. 
But when Serena Williams talks about having to take charge of her treatment during her daughter's birth after doctors dismissed her concerns, you can only imagine the stories of Black women without her wealth or fame. Yes, there is still a lot of work to do. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.